in context, Paul shows up in a really rough state to Corinth for the first time. Paul had just made his first entry into Europe. And in making his first entry into Europe from Troas, the west coast of Turkey, through a vision of a Macedonian man, he has traveled through Macedonia, which would be appropriate. That is in order, we're looking at this way, it would be Philippi, then Thessalonica, and then Berea, the major cities. They are uh, clearly listed. I mean, there are stopping points in route to there. But those are the three major cities in, uh, in Macedonia. Each place he goes to, he is beat up bad and flees. Well, Philippi, if you remember, he casts a, a demon out of a... And here's a cool part, because we've gone through up to this point in the New Testament. I can refer back and go, remember in Acts 16, where Paul is, uh, he casts a demon out of a, uh, out of a girl who's a servant girl, and that is damage to property in the mindset of a person who owns this slave girl. So he gets arrested, he gets beat up, he gets tortured, uh, and ultimately God has him released and he gets marched out of town. He goes from there then to Thessalonica, and in Thessalonica it's even worse. So Paul flees for his life out of Thessalonica, goes 10 miles west to Berea, and the people in Thessalonica hit him so bad that they go the 10 miles without trains and cars, they go the 10 miles so they could beat up Paul and chase him out of Berea. Paul then makes this long journey from there down the Aegean Bay down to Athens. In Athens, when Paul arrives there, he's in a very different state than I think he's ever been. Now, Paul has been stoned and left for dead in the, uh, as he's gone into the center of Turkey on his first trip. Uh, however... Paul has always had his entourage with him. He's always had, in essence, an assistant and an apprentice, in essence. And there is something, to be honest, about having such guys that really does up your game, if we're going to be honest. I mean, having somebody that you know, in essence, you consider a peer is a pretty radical thing. Because you kind of know at a moment like that, you just like, I can't wimp out with that. But and for some people, that's the issue. But then having somebody that's an apprentice on the other side of that, that's somebody that you know is... That, you, that they're looking at you and they're watching your example. Now, that's more me, I'll be honest. Some people, there's almost a competitive spirit, and it's like, I'm not going to let that guy better me. I'm going to be the Christian, you know, because my peers. And, and I see, I know pastors that are like that, and, and that doesn't make them any better or worse. But there are other people that's like, look, at, I can't fail. I can't bail. I can't let this get on top of me because there are people that are watching, and I'm going to be the example of this. And the reason I say that is Paul's had his entourage, and if nothing else, they are they are stakes in his tent, if you if that makes sense, to kind of keep it you know keep it up. But when Paul makes his way down to Athens, uh, and at this point, by the way, we're roughly fifty four, fifty five uh, A.D. But when Paul makes his way down into Athens, he left them up in Thessalonica and Berea. He left them up there because he fled so quickly out of Berea. He didn't have really have time for the people who got saved to actually help them get grounded in the word. So he left those guys there to kind of, in essence, to follow up with them. Now Paul's kind of by himself. And I remind you, Paul is a very intelligent man. We know that because in his own testimony, he says he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the greatest expositor of the day 
of Old Testament scripture. As a matter of fact, he was also the president of the Sanhedrin. I mean, there's a lot to be said about that. I mean, it would be the same as saying you were in the toy program with C.S. Lewis. I mean, just saying that, obviously, people expect something from you. Well, in that in mind, um, the reason I said when Paul gets down into Athens, he is brought before the the intellectual hirelings of the, I'm sorry, uh, hierarchy of the day, they are considered, as far as celebrities, the greatest minds in the thinking world. And they're all gathered together at Mars Hill to hear Paul give his dissertation on this weird religion he's bringing in. And Paul brings, and he does this, this uh, if you will, he kind of does this expose in Acts 17. And it really is sad. It's sad because people, and we talk about this, we do not build doctrine off of historical passages. It's like a guy does something and we don't, well, that's the way we should do it. It's like, well, Judas hung himself. Are you going to follow that? And, and so many people take Acts 17 and they use that as their launch pad for their entire ministry because he quotes poets and, you know, he does all of these things. And, and he's like, well, he's building a bridge. But you've got to be aware of this. If you're going to build a bridge... You have to have two solid landmarks on each side. There have to be two very definitive places to start from, or it's not a bridge. What, a lot of times what we call building a bridge in Christianity is actually just moving in with the world. You have to have two very definitive places to start from, and we start from our side to come over versus start from their side and try to pull them over. And what Paul does, and I challenge you, don't again, always, don't just believe me, but consider, but only since the scripture to test. But I'd like to put this to test. Paul actually speaks heresy in chapter 17. Because first of all, he says that everybody's a child of God. Which we know better. We know that, know that no one's born a child of God. We're born children of wrath, according to, Act, to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. But when we give our life to Jesus Christ, now we are actually born. And I'd like you to consider this. And, and again, I'm, I'm doing all this because when we sort of move through this, it'll march pretty quickly. Let me ask you, there are three ways you could become a member of someone's family. What are those three ways? What's that? Adoption. Excellent. Marriage. Marriage. Excellent. And the third? You'll be born into it. Now, don't you find it interesting that when God does something, he does it so profoundly uh, full that there's no option left untouched? Do you realize all three happened for us to become children? We are betrothed to Jesus. That makes us, through marriage, into the family. We are born again, and therefore we are born into the family. And we are adopted, because he's placed into our own hearts the spirit of adoption, according to Romans chapter 8. So it's like every way you could become a child, we are. They're like All your bases are covered. Isn't that beautiful? How, I mean, you could have done one, and that would have been enough. But there's no way, and I just, I have this feeling the Lord does it so, so completely, so exhaustively, so the enemy has no place to throw an accusation. There's no place for it to land. Now, considering that, uh, Paul says, you know, well, we're all his offspring, and if we're all his offspring, well, we're not all of his offspring. He also said, in previous times, God left our sins overlooked. Interesting, by the way, because he says, in, on all, by the way, Romans will defy everything he teaches in there. Uh, it, this is in Romans, <clears throat> excuse me, first of all, that there's no one good and no one seeks after God. And, but he also tells us, uh, as, he, as, as Paul's kind of developing all of this, that, that God's invisible attributes, his divine nature are clearly seen by what God has made, so man is without excuse. 
And then he says, and God had hoped that you would seek or grope for him, though he's not very far from any of you. Interesting how Paul is trying to, he's so trying to relate to them that he is sacrificed, but he never in Acts 17 ever mentions the name Jesus, and he never mentions the crucifixion, and he never mentions sin, and therefore never mentions forgiveness. Instead, what he says, instead, he, he, <laughs> He says, after all of this, well, we shouldn't think that, because if we're all offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature of God could be encapsulated in, a, in an idol. That's stupid. You know, he goes, and so he goes, you know, but, but instead, there is a day we are all going to stand before someone who's going to judge the living and the dead. And he has proven that that guy is the right judge by raising him from the dead. Never mentions him as Jesus. And then he goes from that, to never mentioning why Jesus rose from the dead in the first place. Except according to this particular preaching, he tells you, you need to repent because he's going to judge you. There was no Jesus died for your sins. There's no forgiveness. There's no crucifixion. And there's no mention of the name of Jesus. And the reason I say that is, when Paul writes, and as you've read through Corinthians, you know that Paul says in chapter 2, when I came to you, brothers, you know that I resolved, krinos, it means I passed the verdict, not to know anything but Jesus Christ and in him crucified. In other words, when Paul looked back, and now look at, if you talk to any pastor, anyone who's in ministry, and ask, if there was one thing you could do differently, what would you change? What would be the thing? Now, Paul might have said, well, that whole problem with Barnabas, because that was a pretty ugly spot. But if you were to ask, in regards to all the message you've ever taught, can you think of anything you would have ever changed? I guarantee you, hands down, Paul would have said this one. The very one people use as a model for their whole church. And I'm not trying to diss another church. I just want to make clear, Paul would not agree with that. Now, the reason I say this, but let's be honest, how many people have to beat you up in a day to, to make it a bad day? Yeah, how many people have to give you a weird look to ruin your day? And yet Paul went, he went and was beat up and he ran out, and went and beat up and ran out, he went and he beat and ran out, he went down into Athens, and when he went down into Athens, he, he turned the whole thing way down. And because he turned the whole thing way down, the negative response was really small, but so was the positive. And I'll be honest, every one of us in this room, because we've lived in comfort, would be tempted to make that our ministry. Because somewhere in us, we don't want to get beat up. I mean, we're, we're sane. And it'd be like, yeah, but there's still a couple people getting saved here and there. There's still a couple people. Just because Paul had been preaching Jesus before he was brought to this stand. And the simplest truth of it was, is that every one of us has, if you will, a heart of faith and a bag of flesh. And there are certain environments where you Maybe not every one of us here, but certain environments where you, that's your environment where you'd be more prone to reach in your bag of flesh than to access your heart of faith. And it, tra it traditionally tends to be a place that we are, uh, we're kind of strong in. The kind of button that we would push that puts us in the front of the queue. It could be charm, it could be your looks, it could be your talent, it could be how clever you are. It's something that you know that if in certain environments where you could feel a little insecure or you feel like you have to push yourself forward, you're going to reach into that bag of flesh because it's going to get you forward. And that's what Paul did. Now, the reason I say that is, ultimately his boys will show up. But Paul is going to leave Athens and the next place he goes to is Corinth. When Paul goes to Corinth, don't miss this. Jesus shows up. And again, this should be reviewed because we've read it next. But 
Jesus shows up there. And how many times has Jesus personally made a house call with Paul? Well, that's how Paul's faith started with Christ, right? I mean, he encountered him. But Jesus says, Paul, in the Greek, literally, stop being afraid, man. I'm going to be with you, and I'm with you. And I have a lot of people in this city in places you don't know about. So I need you to be bold because your fear is making you quiet. Now, it's a very loose paraphrase, but I challenge you to check it yourself. That's 1 Corinthians, end of 17, and then the beginning of 18. Which tells me something. That even though Paul had not gotten beat up in Athens, he was still afraid. And when Paul made his way into Corinth, he was still afraid. He was afraid to get back out and be the person God had called him to be. And and now let's face it, in Paul's case, it's legit. It's certainly a lot more legit than me. I mean, if people threaten my death and they looked at me with this look like they were trying to convince me they meant it. And that has happened, happened several times since I've been here. But it's not stopped me. But there's a part of you that thinks, well, if I just turn it down, that's the temptation. If I turn it down, not because the Lord is telling me to, because if I turn it down, I'm still technically ministering. So I'm not stopping. But if you got to know this, full on is the only place you respect yourself. Does that make sense? I mean, I, I know some of you well enough to know anything less than full on can still push you forward to some circles, but you don't respect yourself like you could because you know you got more to give. And there's a difference. And I, I, maybe it's just the way I was raised. I was never raised win. I was raised dominate. I actually appreciated it, to be honest. My dad was always the one for all of, you know, for his humanities. He was always the one that's like, could you have pushed it a little harder? Did you have, did you have more to spend? Did you have more to give? And I remember hearing a story once uh, from the uh, Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the Terrible, the Tsar of Russia, had commissioned somebody to make, and of course, I, I, off the top of my head, I couldn't tell you the architect, hadn't been planned to share, who would make St. Basil's Cathedral. Are you familiar with St. Basil's Cathedral? It looks like something out of Candyland. I mean, it... it Challenge you on your own, look up St. Basil's Cathedral. It really does look like something from Candyland. It looks like something from Willy Wonka. I mean, it's like the colors, I mean, it's, the whole thing is surreal. And he said, he said, I want you to make the most brilliant and beautiful place you ever could. So he did. At least as far as the architect was concerned. And afterwards, he showed it to him, and I'm terrible, was impressed. And then he just asked him a simple question. He goes, let me ask you, do you think that there are any improvements you could have made on this? If you were to do another one, do you think you could do even better than this? And the guy said, yes. So he had his eyes burned out because the idea of it was he didn't want anything better. He wanted this to be the best there was. And there's got to be this place where you're like, you know what? It doesn't really matter. I would rather have given my all and lost the game, if that makes sense, than given less than one. And for Paul, he's freaked out to the point where he's turning it down. And now Jesus meets him and says, man, you need to really go for it. And Paul will spend a year and a half in Corinth, second longest place He'll spend in all of his ministry as far as uh, on the mission field. Paul ultimately <clears throat> will head back and he heads on his third mission trip and he winds up in Ephesus. Now we're roughly 59 AD. And as Paul winds up in Ephesus, 
he is uh, confronted ultimately by three individuals, Stephanatis, Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus. Three men, one of which we know that Paul had baptized, according to this letter, who basically send something to him and say the church is a mess. Now, Corinth, for what it's worth, again, and it's important to note, was the Vegas of the day. As a matter of fact, it was common, uh, and I can pull out all kinds of quotes, but for the sake of time, let's just say that it was synonymous. Homer, for instance, was one of them. It was synonymous with sin. As a matter of fact, to call someone a Corinthian was to say that they had no morals. And in one case, I think it was Homer that would use it to call a, a prostitute a Corinthian girl. I mean, I mean, you think, a Vegas girl, what is that? Or an Amsterdam girl, what image does that paint for you? Well, that was kind of the stereotype, was the idea. And the reason I say that is when a church is placed in a place where it is all about tolerance, and it's all about anything goes, the church has one of two places to go with it. It either goes with where they're super tolerant, and so in which case... They just want to look like the rest of everything there. And it's like, well, of course, that's the Corinthian church because it looks just like Corinth. Or they go to the other side of it where they kind of like lock stock and barrel, say we'll have nothing to do and then become monks somewhere in the Corinthian mountains, so to speak. And verse, I mean, and unfortunately, neither one is impacting the community. And what we find is that the church at this point is really gone to be a mess. Now, please hear me. It's one thing to actually go to a place, because Paul, for instance, he writes two letters to, to Thessalonica, and he's been, he'd been there a couple times, but he had remotely spent the time that he spent in Corinth. However, the Corinthian letter, even one of the Corinthian letters, is so much longer than both of the Thessalonian letters combined. I mean, and he's certainly, and Paul has his heart in this, because by the time we get to 2 Corinthians next week, God willing, we'll see. I don't know if I can find a letter where Paul is really more hurt. I mean, it is a letter where Paul, I mean, I, I think Paul was crying through half of it. I mean, when you read it, you kind of get why, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But please hear me in this. In this particular letter, what he finally says is there were three basic problems to the church. And the three basic problems to the church, and Paul writes, when he writes, he writes in response to it, the letter breaks up into two sections. The first section, those first six chapters, he addresses then those three problems with a single diagnosis. And the diagnosis is, you are still carnal. The word carnal is the word sarch, like sarch, which means you're still in the flesh. And the idea, and please hear me, from the moment we give our life to Christ, every moment there will be a tug of war while we live on earth. Where we're going to, you will never stay stagnant, though you may feel like you are. You are either going to be pulled to become more like Jesus, or you're going to become pulled to be more like the world. And it's always going to be like that for the rest of your life here. Mine too. And the idea of when I watch somebody and I see some new movement in the church, I'm always just asking, is it making them more like Jesus? If it's making them more like Jesus, cool. I mean, if everyone decided they had to grow a beard and all wear flannels, hey, I don't care. If everyone decided they all wanted to get tattoos on their noses, I don't really, I mean, it's not the issue. The issue is, are they looking more like Jesus? I'm not just talking about they got a beard so they look like Jesus. You know, it's like, well, poor girls. Uh, well, I, anyways. Um, but, but, but are they, are, is there more selflessness? Is there more commitment to people? Is there more, you know, a less attachment to the world in regards to its traps and more of a drive 
to be alone with the Father, to breathe Him and to be alone and, and then go and take that, those moments and, and, and then infect the world with it. Because when you watch that happen, you tend to find it has nothing to do with tattoos and flannels and beards anymore. And again, it, you can do that because ultimately what happens is somebody's usually in, on fire, other people catch that spark, and then they tend to do something weird like dress like banana. I don't care. In the end of it all, I am hard-pressed to find movements within the church lately that I would say people are becoming more like the church. What I find, though, is instead people making, well, it's like you got a bunch of people that at one point were all like, we don't do things, and now someone goes, well, here's the new freedoms, and so they celebrate these new worldly freedoms, but it doesn't mean they're more like Jesus. What it does is it, it opens them up to things that are potential hazards. And again, I'm not here to condemn a single action, I'm here to say everything's a route, and the bottom line is if you get on that ramp, if you get off that, well, what do we call it here? Because it's not an off-ramp here. You're driving on a main thoroughfare, and you're going to go off to another street. On the motorway. No, on the motorway. Okay, yeah, that's right. Thank you. Okay, yeah. So you're going to take this skip, right? You're going to take this, that, that takes you on to something else. Well, you know the moment you do that, it's going to take you somewhere else. The question is, is it still taking you in the direction you're supposed to go, or is it actually taking you back the other? And it's amazing because within the church, there is so much room for sin and so much room to say, hey, now look it. If we are on this road to go where to become more like Jesus, will we stumble? Will we have moments where we're like, dang it, stupid flesh? Yes. And the Bible tells us, Proverbs tells us that a righteous man may fall seven times, but he'll always rise up again. The wicked fall by calamity, and the idea is they fall and they don't get up. Now, the reason I say this is the same thing. I'm on a, you know, it's like I'm on a train or I'm on a bus, and you know, at one point sooner or later, and it's happened a lot lately where you're on a train and they sit there and then it just stops. And nobody's telling you anything. And for the first couple of minutes, we kind of look at each other like this is normal. And then it turns into 10 minutes, and we all kind of look around and go, you know, by this point, someone should be saying something, right? And they're like, you know, it happened last night on my way home. And if someone finally, the, you know, I think finally the, the conductor woke up and said, oh, there's, I don't know, something's going on. But don't worry, it'll be okay. Just enjoy sitting, you know. Well, and it's like the bottom line is at that moment we weren't going anywhere. But I know the train that I was on was still going the direction I needed to go once it got moving again. And the reason I say that is there's a difference between stumbling, but you know where you're going, and changing directions altogether. And this particular church, Paul and I, mind you, Paul had spent a year and a half there. That is an awful lot of time to spend at a single place for Paul. And the church, you would have thought by this point, what I kind of see is, but Paul, and the, the word that stands out is the word still. It's like you're still carnal. It's like Paul had kind of built things up in a way that he's like, okay, I'm kind of giving you the basic routine, what we do to kind of get healthy spiritually, how to maintain, how to encourage each other, how to have church in a way that's going to bless and edify each other. Now, keep doing this, and we're going to be awesome. And it's kind of like, you know, the kid's two years old and he's, you got him walking and he's kind of, you know, at this point he's not banging his head on things anymore and all of that. And that's okay at two. And now all of a sudden, if you think about it, it's like, you know, it's four years later. And at this point he's still 
walking around like a two-year-old, and he's like, he still hasn't figured out at this point how to go to the bathroom by himself. And you kind of look and you're thinking, well, the problem is you're still two. That's just not right anymore. Hey, at a certain stage, that was acceptable because I knew you had growing to do, but now you're spiritually retarded. And I'm not trying to use the word in a false way properly. You're spiritually, which means slow. You're slow in your growth. I don't see it now. And so what Paul looks at is he basically has to address that. Now, what that tells me is if we were to look at what we see in these first six chapters, what we see then is what a spiritually retarded church would look like. By the way, I find it interesting. It is still an extremely charismatic church. The gifts are being exercised like crazy. And actually, that's probably the proper term for it. I mean, there is an awful lot of spiritual stuff going on. A whole lot of tongues, by the way, is what it appears. Now, I'm not saying a church that, is, that exercises tongues often is, a, is an immature church. The point isn't that. The point is, is that that can happen and the church can still be immature. That's what he's telling us. So I want to make sure that's clear. There were prophets, and apparently they were competing too. So there was this, I mean, the church, from, a, from what we might say is a spiritual condition, it was very spiritual. It was very supernatural. But it was messed up. And then from chapter, so the first six chapters then is he addresses that issue from its symptoms. Then from chapter seven to the end of the book, he actually answers questions because he says, now considering the things you wrote to me, which means that Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus had come with a letter that said, you know, Paul, help, church is a mess. But also, hey, we've got some questions for Pastor Paul. And if you could remember this, see if you can repeat after me for a moment. Ready? Marrying meat, giving idols. You try it. Marrying meat, giving idols. Now, marrying meat, giving idols, men and women at the table. Marrying meat, giving idols, men and women at the table. Try that again. Marrying meat, giving idols, men and women at the table. Okay, did you get that much? Now, spiritual gifts, love church practices. Try that. Spiritual gifts, love church practices. Resurrection, giving, and goodbye. Resurrection, giving, and goodbye. Now, that's every chapter from that point on. So let me say it again. So it goes like this. Marrying me, giving idols, men and women at the table. Spiritual gifts, love, church practices. The resurrection, giving, and goodbye. That's every chapter. Giving and goodbye is the last chapter. So marriage, chapter 7. Meat given to idols, chapter 8. You know, marrying me, giving, chapter 9. Men and women at the table, chapter 10. You know, and that's, that's kind of, that's how we're working it. Marrying me, giving idols. Chapter 10 is about idols. Chapter 11, men and women at the table. The roles of men and women and about the table in regards to the communion table. Chapter 12, spiritual gifts. 13, love. We know that chapter. Chapter 14, the way it's to be practiced in church. Now, I remind you, it's interesting. Someone gets a spiritual gift and they think, well, this is going to make me look good. I should practice this in church. He says, well, we need to set some proper boundaries to that. So that's chapter 14. 15, the resurrection. And chapter 16 is about his collection, the giving, and goodbye. Oh, by the way, bye, guys. So that's our whole book in a simplest sense. So, if you know, it's like I would challenge you, if you knew that much, you could go, okay, marrying me, given idols, men and women, marrying me, given idols, men and women at the table, you know, spiritual gifts, love, church practices, resurrection, giving, and goodbye. If you knew that, you would know every theme of the questions that are being answered from chapter 7 to the end. Does that kind of make sense? Now, 
What I want to do then is let's, um, I'm going to go through the first part and we'll take a break. Uh, the first section, again, that was chapters 1 to 6. Does that make sense? Now, I shouldn't be doing much more or very little to anything um, beyond what I've written here. I'm trying to make it really easy for you. So let's do it this way. And I might even put it in a way so that the answers are already written for you. So the root of the problem is in chapter 3, verse 3, for you are still carnal. Now again, I remind you, the word is still. Hey, when you give your life to Christ, I gave my life to Christ at 19. I had been sinning for 19 years, living for myself for 19 years, and now I'm born again. I was an infant saved person, and I was a 19-year-old sinner. There was a whole lot of things that needed to change. And here's the exciting part. You know what happens? You get super stoked in the beginning because you just love Jesus and you just never want to sin again. Which, by the way, is a really <laughs> great place to be. Until you realize that you still have a lot of things that God's going to shave off. I love that, by the way. But it's a hard lesson to learn. So you know what happens? Somewhere down the line, you do something that makes you feel nasty and the last place you want to be is where you need to be, which is among other believers. Because if you were among other believers, they'd say, that's actually normal. Do you know the power of the ministry of being able to tell someone that? Do you know what works really well? First couple of years of marriage. Because in the first couple of years of marriage, every little thing is a huge thing. And you're like, actually, that's normal. Here's the good news. See it for the size it is and get past it. For goodness sakes. Isn't it interesting? The devil never condemns an unbeliever for their sin. Only a believer. Funny how that works, isn't it? Because what effect would it have on an unbeliever? So, still carnal. But every day, if we are more like Christ, what if a year from now we look and we see Jesus more in us than we did a year ago? We'd be able to go, I think we're on the right trajectory. I mean, I'd love to just snap my fingers or not snap my fingers and have us all just instantly look like Jesus. But if that's the case, then we live the rest of our life and someone would say, what's Jesus doing in your life today? You'd be like, well, I can tell you about when that finger got snapped. But as he continues to develop us each day, we look more like him. I can tell you what Jesus is doing in my life today. And that's a long time since 1984. I mean, how many of you weren't born in 1984? Which means I'm born again longer than you were born. Mm -hmm. And think about the changes you've gone through since you've been born. You know, aren't you glad you didn't just you didn't just in the womb become an adult. I know your mother is. So let's do this. Can you see all of these verses here? What I want to do is let's just go around and read these verses. Can we do that? The first area, and again, I want you to note these things because these are things we, there is, well, I said, there, there are things that we want to be keen to look at in our church. And one of the, by the way, no area gets tackled more in all of the epistles than this one, the area of divisions. Because no area seems to be more effective at destroying a fellowship than the area of division. Now, Paul will say some division actually needs to happen, that those that are approved would clearly manifest. But there's a difference between setting Christian against Christian and a division between the holy and what is profane. That's a very big difference. So here we go. So and this is, and all of this is to say, you tell me whether you think there was a problem with division according to these verses. One twelve says, and I'll read one twelve and thirteen. Marcy, you can have one seventeen. Now I say this: that each one of you says, "I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Kephas." That's Peter. I'm of Christ. 
Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, but the world to not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen, and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Uh, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Deny, brethren, when I came to you, did you come to the excellence of speech or, the, or of wisdom declaring to you testimony of God? For you determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. These things we also speak, not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, which, sorry, which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk, not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able. You're still carnal. For where there is envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Paulus, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? Advantage Apollos water, but God giving peace. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. But it is wisdom, he captures the wise in their own craftiness. Let a man of considerateness, as servant of Christ and stewardess of the mystery of God. Okay, I've got a couple questions for you. First, one person is mentioned more than others other than himself. Who is the one person he continually or consistently mentions here? Apollos. Apollos. Now, excellent. Next question. There is a word he uses quite commonly of what he did not use or what he, uh, what he made sure that he didn't try to exercise instead. What is this, this particular word that's used? And it's used in different kind of conjugations give you an idea it was man's that he didn't use yes. yes do yourself a favor for a moment and just take your with your pen or whatever 
circle the times you see the word wisdom or wise in these verses. It's pretty profound how many times it's being used, isn't it? It would be easy to overlook it when we read it. But when you look at how many times it's being used, I cannot tell you how pertinent this is to a current state of our church. Again, church in mass. <clears throat> there was a man, this is what we know about Apollos. Apollos was from a place called Alexandria. Does anyone know anything about Alexandria? Of course, it's in Egypt. Yes, matter of fact, it had the excellent. It had the largest library in the world. Alexandria was the place. It was the smart person factory. Is that where the Greeks went to learn maths? Matter of fact, it was the place. If you said you were from, kind of like if you said you were from Oxford, I guess is the idea. If you said you were from Alexandria, they would assume you were brilliant. It's kind of like if you were dumb, they probably just killed you there and buried you in the sand. But and that would mean Alexandria was where they wanted to make sure that every book that was ever written was translated into Greek and kept there in their library. Do you know where the second largest library was, by the way? Excellent. Ephesus, the Celsius Library, for what it's worth. What we read about Apollos is he was from Alexandria. So that instantly paints a picture. So once upon a time, there was a guy who was from Oxford came out and he was eloquent in speech. What does that mean? Excellent. And he was well versed in scripture, but he knew only the baptism of John. The baptism of John was one that said, repent. So, you were horrible, rotten sinner. These are the laws. You've clearly broken them. Stop doing that. That's the end of the message. But there was a couple that had been traveling with Paul. And the couple's names were Aquila and Priscilla. As a couple, they're only mentioned, they're mentioned six times in scripture. They're only mentioned together. And for what it's worth, just out of fun, three times he's mentioned first, three times she's mentioned first. That's, that's scandalous. Anyways, uh, they pull him aside and they explain the way of truth more clearly. He was in Ephesus when this had happened. He had a group of people, it seems to be 12, that had been his disciples, kind of like John the Baptist had them. But then he left. At that point, he kind of gets cleaned up in his doctrine. But then he's like, okay, I should probably leave. Instead of getting right with these guys, he leaves them. But then guess where he goes? He heads over and ultimately to Corinth. And when he heads over to Corinth, this is what we know about him. Now he knows the truth about Jesus Christ, but he's eloquent. He's a gifted speaker. And people love that. What, now, according to what Paul says here, what did he look like when Paul showed up? Remember, what was his presentation of himself? He didn't use, yeah, Paul, he didn't use persuasive words. It said he came in fear and trembling. I mean, Paul showed up, he was the opposite. Paul was weak and feeble and socially awkward. As a matter of fact, what he'll tell us in 2 Corinthians, he says people would say that his books or his letters are weighty, but his physical appearance is unimpressive and his speech contemptible. In other words, 
you'd read his letters and you'd be like, wow. And then you'd see him live and you're like, that guy wrote this. And then he begins to talk and then you're like, oh, no way. This is like Millie Vanilli, right? Clearly somebody else wrote this. You can imagine, I mean, he would have, what that sounds like is he had a voice that grated on your nerves. You know, and just, and I won't even imitate because it would be insulting someone, right? And no one in this room, of course. But it's, you know, but it's like the reason I say that is, is that Paul was the kind of person that, that nobody would want to be seen with him in public as far as from a physical appearance perspective, from outward perspective. And when Paul says, when Paul addresses there are divisions, you know what he goes on? He goes, listen, let's just make it clear. Every human being's a nobody compared to Jesus. He who plants and waters, he's no one. You know who God chooses? You know who God calls? He calls the foolish and the weak and the despised and the base and those that are not. He goes, that's who he calls. So you want to say, well, check out these called guys. This is who God calls. He calls in the simplest sense the underdog. And if we're going to look at that from perspective, Paul seems to qualify quite nicely. Paul didn't flaunt his brilliance here. As a matter of fact, at this point, people are like, this guy's a drooler. You know, and then, uh, and then after he, like after Paul leaves, you know, out steps this guy and he is just the thing. He's got his entourage and he's just sweet and he's smooth and he's, you know, he's a baby. And his voice and big girls swoon while he's sharing, you know. And the reason I say that is, Paul says the division, you realize, this shows how carnal, how in the world and in the flesh you are, because you're more wrapped up in how cool you would look in high school than you really would from a perspective of eternity. In other words, the simplest sense, to walk in the flesh disconnects you from eternity and makes everything about right now. So that's the first problem he has. And how does he address it? He says, <coughs> you need to realize, Apollos is no one. And by the way, Paul would actually say, you know, I tried to get, Paul to, I tried to get Apollos to go there, and he wouldn't go. You could, which tells us, by the way, that you know, it's Paul's like, do you realize how bad the church is? Apollos, you could help solve this problem. You should let him know you're no one. And Paul, and he said, and I love it, because he could hear the frustration. He's like, Apollos was unwilling, but he will go when he has a more convenient time. Anyways, I just, maybe it just comes with being a dad and a pastor, but you're like, ah, you, you could be so helpful here. Anyways, but so the first problem is that there's division. But it isn't, it, okay, look, at there's people who sow division, and Paul's going to address that even to his last letter. And he goes, you need to mark them. You, just take, you need to take care of concern. You need to warn them. And then you need to kick them out. You need to tell them. You look at, I'm warning you. You are dividing the body of Christ, and, and you need to either shape up or ship out, was the idea. You'll actually call them brothers who are taken captive to do the will of the enemy to Titus. That's pretty heavy. Second problem. So first problem, divisions. Second problem, listen to these verses for a moment because I want you to realize there's a natural assumption, but we have to go, we have to be scholars, students of the scripture. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and, and such sexual immorality as not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Deliver such a one as Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother, 
especially immoral or covetous or an idolater or a revolver or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. Oh, who wants to do that? See, pre, and again, I'm, you're aware of the fact that I'm only pulling certain verses, so we're not reading the entirety of the text. But he said, look, it, I told you not to keep company with the immoral person. He goes, but I'm not talking about the world. Because if that's the case, you'd have to leave the planet. But I'm telling you, you need to do that in regards to a brother, someone who calls himself a brother. Now, look, it, is there a difference between someone who's struggling and one of these people? And my answer is yes. A person who's struggling will, will tell you that what they're doing is wrong. Now, and ultimately, if they know what's wrong, they're going to start making steps to try to get away from it. This is a person, notice it doesn't say somebody who does this, someone who is an idolater, someone who is, in other words, that's just who they are. This is just who I am. You're just going to have to deal with it. And the reason I say that is, is that, okay, first of all, could there be more harsh statements than this? And I want to remind you, this is the Bible. This is not commentary. This is the Bible here. Now, what is the big sin here in these verses? It is not sexual sin. It's tolerance to it. Because he says, this is what I hear. It's reported to me. Remember, he had gotten a letter and he goes, you know what I hear? A guy has his father's wife. Now, people are like, well, that can't be mom. Maybe that's stepmom. Who cares? It's still gross. And what he says is actually, he goes, this doesn't even happen in the unsaved world. So maybe it is mom. It really doesn't matter. He goes, the point is, he goes, and you guys are puffed up about it. Do you know what that means? They're actually saying to the world, check it out. We're actually more tolerant than you are. How crazy is that? In other words, they're not, they're not, they're not even gone to, they even, they're not just saying, forgive me for trying to figure out how to say this, they're not just saying, check it out, we're just like you. They're like, ha, 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 we're better than you are at sinning. So in the first case, in regards to division, how does he tackle that? You need to realize we're all nothing but saved by grace. In the second case, how does he deal with this? How do you deal with the guy? What's the, what does he tell him to do? Okay, how do you deliver someone to Satan? Do you just, you know, how, how, how do you do that? Yeah, you know what you do? You kick them out of the church. Now, you know the difference between this and now? If you kick them out of your church, they just go to another. Now, we used to have, by the way, back in the Central Coast, we had a consortium of pastors where we'd sit and meet. And specifically, one of the things we helped establish, this because we're these guys that would go from church to church just to collect money and they tell you their stories. And, and, uh, and they just thought that churches were like a bank where you can make withdrawals but not with deposits. And, you know, it's funny, the, the same guy that's like, church only wants your money. It's funny, how much money have you given the church? How much money have you gotten from church? Well, so what we do is we was I had suggested we put a database together, and you take a picture of the guy or gal, but almost always it's a guy, and you would write the details of their particular story on the database. So when the guy would show up, 
And you would, you know, and say, oh, well, it's interesting. According to this, your name is something different, and your wife died a year ago, not yesterday. And, and it's like you kind of get the idea, and you can't tell me you haven't gotten anything because this church just gave you $300, you know, that kind of thing. At least you have it all in the same database was the idea. And so when somebody was a concern, for instance, uh, there was a particular guy that was a youth leader that was uh, arrested for child molestation. And he was actually the coach of the softball team, a, a young a kid's softball team. And, uh, of course, at that point, especially once he got convicted and he was going to be released, we were all aware of the situation because we all needed to to protect the kids. Because, unfortunately, what he was doing is he was hiding the fact. He was not allowed to be in a place where children were, but he was still trying to head to church without an escort. Now, we allowed people that were on those kind of lists, but they always had to be with an escort. We had several of them. But they were assigned an escort, and they could only be at the church when that person was there. Because it was to protect the children. And they would actually get up and walk with them to the restroom and walk with them back. Because they had to walk through a children's area to do that. So they could only do that under the circumstances. But we had a really good relationship with the police. The whole point of it was, is that at least in a case like that, the person would have to go a little farther. you know. Now, the reason, please understand, this is not because the church is the judge and jury. The purpose of this is actually not just to punish the individual. Punishment in and of itself is foolish. Punishment is supposed to be rehabilitative. It's supposed to be the idea that it's supposed to change behavior. Notice it says that his body would be burned, but that his soul would be spared. In other words, you know what's going to happen? You're, trying to, you're playing it safe on both worlds. On one side of it, you're actually playing and you're, 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 you're completely indifferent to the sins that you're living in making no attention whatsoever. And on the other side, if you're trying to live this holy life or trying to play this holy life, you know what? You can't have both because the car can't go in both directions at the same time. And what Paul says is, now again, this guy's one issue, but the issue is not this guy. The issue is the church because the church is going, check it out, we can't do anything with this guy. We're tolerant. He's like, what you have to do, if you really love this guy, you'd say, why don't you go out there, just go for it. Go for it and be crazy. And when you're done and you really genuinely want to repent, then come back. Now, what if the best of all worlds is you tell him that and you're like, are you ready to make that decision now? Because one of these doors has to close. And I'll be honest, we've had to do this with individuals before. And it is one of the things that is the hardest thing to do. Because you know, no matter who it is, some, most of the people are going to hate you for it. Even if they were all affected negatively by the person, if they're causing division or they're being, you know, or they're doing something that's a lifestyle of sin and you have to sit down and go, are you willing to make the changes necessary? And if you're not, you really can't be here. And they're like, well, who are you to judge? The person that's trying to keep this church safe. That's kind of the idea. Now, here's the good news. When we get to 2 Corinthians, this guy is going to repent and come back. So we actually see success story in this. I mean, it's like, look, at get out there. But I want you to know the moment, the moment you have changed your mind about your sin. Again, I'm not talking about struggling. I'm talking about you. You don't care. The moment you're going to be the moment you want to see change. I'm here to let you know you're welcome home. That's the idea. Now. That's our second one. So the, so the first one, again, is divisions. The second one is tolerance to sexual sin. Does that make sense? Now, which one of you wants to be that guy to do this? You know? But I want to warn you. 
there are going to be times, it's fairly likely, there are going to be times where Daniel and I are going to have to sit down with somebody, but there's a whole process that happens. This isn't just like we wake up one day and decide we want someone out of church kind of thing. There's always a process, and there's, you know, we talk about correct, rebuke, Correct is to inform them, assuming they're ignorant of the problem, and then you reinforce it, and then you rebuke, you tell them there's, an, there's a consequence to it, and then ultimately, you, you know, there's a step that you have to take where you have to be like, you're not welcome here in this state. And I can tell you, know that we never, ever take that lightly. We can't afford to take that lightly, but we also can't afford not to do this when we're supposed to. And you know what's going to happen? The moment you do that, now someone's going to blog. <laughs> you know, and they're going to gather their crew, and they're going to swallow up their posse, and of course, you're going to be the bad guy. I felt like I've been a bad guy for two and a half years. But I want you to know that, is that the people are safe because of that. And you've you, you got to know I would never do it otherwise. Anyways, and it's never done alone. But that's what Paul said. But it's not necessarily just like... Because as a new Christian, I actually had to do this with a friend who was I met in church, and she was sleeping with her boyfriend. And a few of us had gone to her, and she just didn't want to stop. But she was saying she was a Christian, she was going to church. And I read that verse. I, there were so many things. It was like the first time I was ever reading it. Mm. And I was so convicted. I was like, oh, man. And so I had to tell her, I'm like, according to the Bible, I can't even eat with you. Mm. And it was hard. But I mean, yeah. it wasn't like the church. I, I didn't expect that the church had to deal with it because I didn't know if the church even knew. Right. Her personal life it was kind of a big church, and but I felt like regardless of what the church decided to do, I knew, and you know, it was on a personal just level. That's she didn't appreciate that very much. I'm sure, but they never do. Yeah. But I don't remember. At the moment, I don't remember exactly how it all. I just think she ended up moving, so I don't know what exactly ended up happening, but. Suzanne, that's actually very brave and awesome. Yeah. (laughs) But, you know, it was like, well, I can't read any further if I can't do this. Yeah. We've known people who've moved out of their house because of that. (coughs) Because they're like, I can't live in this house with these things going on and us all calling ourselves Christians. Mm -hmm. Now, look at, if we're going to be honest, everybody deals with sin. And and can I just say, the first thing you do is you sit down with an individual and say, can we agree this is wrong? And you know what the sad part is? A lot of times, it it won't go beyond that. Because they'll be like, no, I'm not going to say this is wrong. And you're like, wow, well, how in the world can I tell you that you need to obey God if I won't obey God with this? Because I'm doing the same thing, only at a different point. Hey, is that easy? Of course that's not easy. Because you know, and you know what people say, you're not being their friend. Right? And they, and they make you feel horrible, as if it doesn't feel bad enough. But you can't be, you can't be someone's friend by letting them kill themselves, even spiritually, and think you're being a friend by doing that. Ushering them to the bridge for them to jump is in no way being a friend unless you say you know what you need to know that biblically if I'm going to stand by the Bible I have to stand by this and and again there is something sweet though about having a friend you know you can get the truth from but what happens if the person is willing to agree that, that it is wrong sometimes they're drowning 
In other words, it, it's like, in, are you willing to, conf, you know, you, are we willing to agree? But understand, if you say it's wrong, I have to say it's wrong too. I can't. I mean, if we are agreeing, that means we both have to say it's wrong. But there's sometimes someone gets so caught into something that they can't get out, and we can't just say swim harder. This is why we confront them in the first place, because our whole heart is restoration, reconciliation. That's our whole heart in it. That's the whole point of Second Corinthians, by the way. And so, you know, it's like, hey, look, if you are, like, if we're agreeing that it's wrong, what needs to happen to help you get out of this? What do we need to do? Because I'm here to help. Because, it, you know, otherwise we are judge and jury unless we're really willing to help. But when a person, you know, to be honest, I can tell you some of my best friends in the world have been guys that I've sat with because of this same thing and said, you know, bro, this is where it goes. Are we? And again, the moment someone's willing to admit it's wrong, we're on a great track. Because now it's like, what do we need to do to make this happen? Some of those guys are pastors now. But and it, were, it was a rough road. But again, a righteous man may fall, but he'll get back up again. There's a difference between making a stupid choice, and I'm not poo-pooing that it's still bad but you're like no that's wrong well then what do we need to do and if that is bashing paraphernalia on a piece of pavement which we've done and throw it off a pier or stay up all night while somebody comes down from something or whatever i can tell you or whether it's to be honest it's to rescue someone out of a house that they really are in it they can't stay sober in or they can't not fall in in some other way or to be honest in one case it was like you know, it was actually screwing the screen of a uh, computer onto their desk in the middle of their living room so that they couldn't go into the room privately with it to do things and watch things they shouldn't. And the point is, it's like, look at, hey, if, if you're dying, if you're drowning, it doesn't matter how drastic it has to be to rescue you. You're just happy to be rescued unless you want to drown. Well, that's the whole point of that. So anyways, so what's crazy though is, is that, please hear me in this, a carnal church, and a carnal Christian, let's face it, a carnal church is made up of carnal Christians. That's the point. Is that the church is supposed to be, it's kind of like a, a hospital, you would expect sick people to be in a hospital. You just would hope they'd stop being sick sooner or later, or you really wouldn't want to go to that hospital. You shouldn't go to that hospital. If no one that's sick gets anything but sicker, I'd kind of go, mm, avoid that one. And the reason I say that is, is people go, oh, I don't want to go to church because there's too many sick people, so to speak. And you're like, yes, but are they getting better? But if they're not getting better, then there's something wrong with the institution. What's crazy, though, is there is a tolerance and an intolerance to every person. The question is, what are we willing to tolerate and what are we not willing to tolerate? Well, what we should not be willing to tolerate sin because if we love someone, we don't love what hurts them. And we can't be indifferent about what destroys them. Look at the third one. We'll read our verses. And then we'll take a quick break so we can gelatinize for a moment. By the way, I love your insertions. Dare any one of you, having a matter against another... Oh, Marcy, you had to read this with me. <laughs> Go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints... Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge the world? How much more things that pertain to this life? Then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life. Yet upon those who are at least 
What do you think stands for the Church of Judgment? I say this to, to your shame. Is it, is it so? that, yeah, that there is not a wise man among you, not even you who will be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goes to law against brother, and that's for unbelievers. Now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not deceive, neither fornication or no adultery, sorry, adulterator, no adult. Yeah, boy, you got you got the fun one. No homosexuals or no sodomite. No thieves, no covetous nor drunkards, nor revilers, that's party animals is the idea, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. You can be an ex-anything. Praise God for that. But notice, what's our third problem? Suing. Might I say, they were tolerant to sin, but intolerant to each other. Paul did not just call it a failure. What did he call it here? Utter, Utter failure. He goes, this is <coughs> as bad of a failure as you can have. Can you imagine? A Christian suing another Christian, this is as bad as it can get, is what Paul's saying. Well, interesting. He didn't say that about the sexual sin. He didn't say that about the division. But he said about suing. What's the difference between the three? In the third one, you need the world to solve your problems. In other words, you have not just turned the inside raw, but now you're actually keeping the world out from coming to Christ. You are interfering with their walk with Christ, their possible conversion. They're like, well, if they can't get along, why in the world would I want to be a part of that? Now, in the first case, with division, he solves it by saying, everyone's no one saved by grace. Get over it. In the second case, there's the tolerance to sexual sin. How does he deal with that? What's the solution to that? Hand him out to, yeah, hand him, kick him out. Hand him over to Satan. Till he repents. In the third case, how does he say, how do we solve this? Instead of suing, what do you do instead? Remember, H1's instead of. What do you do instead? Accept wrongs. That's an option. There's two options. One of them is just be. It would be better for you to be ripped off than get the world involved. Excellent. Find a wise man. Now, why doesn't that work? Because Christians, there are two different things that motivate: conscience and consequence. Before we're saved, consequence is the only thing that'll stop us. That's the whole idea of. The, you know, a law means nothing unless you know what the... I mean, let's face it. Even when they say, if you do this, this is the maximum fine you could get. Or the minimum fine you can get. You know, in other words, it says, I know you're not, I know you're not going to obey it by me telling you not to. So you need to know this is the consequence and it's bad enough to stop you. That's the idea. But Christians are not supposed to be driven by consequence. Consequence can't stop us. We need to go beyond that to conscience. Where the idea of it is... It's wrong and I should just not do it because it's wrong. 
I don't need to be to fear the stick because I should stop before that. You know, then the idea is, you know, like you tell your children, you better not do that or else. And of course, Ruthie will go or else what? Because it's like, what's the consequence? Is it bad enough to keep me from wanting to do it? Now, let's face it. In the world, that would make sense. In the flesh, it makes sense. But in the spirit, it doesn't make sense at all. So the issue, he goes, here's what you should do. If you really are driven by consequence, then you have to be willing to submit to someone you're both willing to submit to as a mediator. And by the way, I've had I don't know, I said, the honor or the privilege of doing this on several occasions where two different people were in a situation. In one case, it was over a great sum of money. And we sat there, and in a case like that, I would, you know, they'd say, well, Pastor, we would like you to go and, and mediate this situation. I'd say, well, I would like to take two other men with me. Well, why? Because I want to make sure that I'm hearing things correctly, and I want to be able to go and pray and debate with these individuals to be able to hear that. So I'd pull a couple people that I knew and I trusted that sometimes hear things I don't hear or see things in a way I don't see things to be able to kind of pull into the situation and go, okay, let's get it all on the table. Let's seek the Lord together. And we'll come up with something. But in the end of it all, you know, you've got somebody who's not going to be happy with your answer. Let's be honest, regardless of the case. Uh, or they both might not be happy with your answer. You never have a situation where both are like, yippee, that was exactly what I was hoping for. Because that, that just doesn't work out. They're there on ends for a reason. But what do you, how, how do you enforce it? What do you have as a consequence to offer them? I mean, there's the problem. But again, as Christians, you would hope they'd be driven by consequence. Conscience. conscience thank you. By conscience. Consequence is the problem because you can't offer anything. You'd say, well, then we could tell you not to come to the church, but then they'd be like, fine, I'll just go down the street. But listen, the one place this works out the best is in marriage counseling. We have two people on ends and they want to go to arbitration somewhere. And it's like, will you give me a shot at it first? Before all of that happens, we can get to the point of this. I mean, you two are both calling yourselves Christians. <coughs> now, I'm assuming by Christian you mean that we're willing to submit to what God's Word says. Well, then can we do that? And, what, and of course, by the time you're done with that, I mean, Paul's like, look at The world's going to be judged by you guys. Angels are going to be judged by you guys. And now, what in the world does that mean? I don't think I can give a good enough answer for that. I don't think the Bible's made that clear enough we could postulate, but I don't think that we can kind of go, well, clearly this is what the event's going to look like. The fact that it's going to happen is weird enough. Because if that's the case, and you're going to drag the world into something stupid? Well, I mean, I mean, yeah, it could be a lot of money, and on this earth that could mean a lot, but I remind you, being in the flesh means that the only thing that really matters is right here. And from an eternal perspective, he's like going, you know... What if somebody really wronged you and you knew you could bury him to bring in the law, but you didn't? No, look at No, I'm not talking about like somebody's molesting children, you bring, you bring the police in. We're talking about civil suits, not criminal suits. We are aware of the difference, right? You know, I mean, this is, you know, this is people's court Judge Wapner stuff, you know, where it's like, well, you know, whatever. And he goes, these are the three things that I've seen that he goes, this is what's gotten over to me that clearly shows this church is messed up. He goes, you guys are divided because it's all about you and who makes you look good. And he goes, but the people that make you look good are just nobodies anyways. The only person that matters is Jesus. He's the only name by which we must be saved. And 
And he goes, then, he goes, you guys are like tolerant over that which is a cancer within the body. And he goes, you need to get that out. And he goes, then you're intolerant about the things that actually are irrelevant in the side of eternity. And he goes, these are the things. He goes, how did you make the those things a big deal and make the thing that destroys the body a little deal? And he goes, man, you guys, we need to get this right. Because you guys need to grow up. Is that what he's telling you, you guys? It's like we would call it first grow upians. Um, so what I want to do is I want to pray for us that again the the fundament on this, and then we'll take a five minute break. Is that cool? Uh, the fundament is this: I want to look more like Jesus. Some of you, I mean, Bruno, how long have you known me? Six years. Isn't that crazy? And actually, we discovered Suzanne corrected me, Daniel. Yesterday, seven years ago, yesterday we left America. Seven years ago, today, we arrived in England. So today's our grand hurrah. So um, my prayer, I mean, and, and you've seen us go through pretty much, we couldn't have imagined six years ago the, the road we've had to walk through. But I will say this, if that's what it takes to make us look more like Jesus in the end of it all, then I'm glad it's over. But <laughs> but I'm glad for the results. You know. So um, and I just I just want to pray that that that's the case. Because there's gonna be so many I dare say there's gonna be so many movements within the church in mass that are gonna be all about that that are really distractions from becoming more like Jesus. And they become, they make us more, they make us more important. And they make, and it's other words, remember when John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. And there's so many, quote unquote, spiritual things that happen where we increase and Jesus decreases. And it's kind of crazy. Now, five minutes done by nine is my plea to you. And I know if you need to go, I know you need to, but uh, we started late. Lord, that's my prayer for us, please, that you would increase that we would decrease. Please, Lord. And I want to thank you for the privilege of being able to have nights like this where we can get real honest and about, I mean, these are some of the hardest issues we'll ever have to face on earth. Having to look at a friend or someone that we've trusted a confine and say, you know, right now we can't hang out. Because the more we do, I'll become numb to this sin and I can't afford that. So, Lord, I just pray. I pray specifically for hearts of repentance in each of us. And those hearts of repentance that we would never take sin cavalier. But also on that same token that we would be loving enough that if we see someone drowning, not just to tell them to swim harder, but to be willing, Lord, to jump in and help them out. But to watch ourselves lest we also be tempted. And Lord, let us tolerate each other's personalities, but be intolerant to sin. And let us be people who want to magnify you, who want to lift you up, who want to exalt you, not other people. In Jesus' name, amen. Someone asks me, do I have the gift of singleness? And I ask them, are you single? And they say, yes. And I say, then, yes, you have the gift of singleness. Does that mean that I'll never get married? How in the world would I know? But for the moment, you have the gift of singleness. 
when you get married, you will not have the gift of singleness anymore. You'll have the gift of marriage. And they have to ask Paul questions. Look, Jesus really is coming back. Is it okay to get married? <coughs> so let's do this. I mean, obviously the, the primary issues are the area of marriage, as we see in this. The issue of meat being sacrificed to idols. Do one brought over you so we can just primarily read the verses, let them teach us as they as they do. Uh, okay, so somebody's killing an animal, sacrificing it to Zeus. Can I get a burger out of it? Is that okay? What if the Mormons own Pepsi? Can I have one? I don't know if they do or not. By the way, they probably don't. <laughs> it would be ironic because they couldn't drink it. Uh, the, but you know, it could be kind of like, I feel like the Muslims owning a pork factory. Uh, but, uh, you know, can you do that? And so he addresses that issue. And, I, and But it's what's really cool, though, is sometimes in this questions, it's really telling. Uh, I mean, there are, there are these areas where it's like, can I still do this and go to heaven? And then there's areas where it's like, is this, is this bad? Those are very different questions. And the first one, you kind of know it's bad. You just don't know how bad, if that makes sense. You know, it's like, honey, if I do this, how many days will you not talk to me? Well, that's a stupid question in the beginning. I'm like, if it's for a minute, it's still too. By the way, that's not the way our relationship works. Uh, you know, it's like, why even, why even play around with that area? And you realize, please hear me in this. Uh, so we can just kind of read through it. But please hear me that. In the beginning, when we first get saved, we just kind of ask, can I do this still? Is this wrong? And it's a great place to start. Again, that's the benefit. That's not how much of this can I do. It's really... And please please hear me, because the real heart just says, is this right or is it wrong? Well, the moment where something is potentially wrong and we're asking how much, we're already playing around with dangerous ground if you think about it. But because I like to, because I'm kind of a hardcore guy, I mean, to be honest, I wish I could have done Suzanne and my courting all over again in the convictions I have now versus how young I was in Christ when we first started. I wouldn't have kissed the girl until our wedding day. And the reason is because it's like, well, the moment you're not sure is like you're playing around with dangerous territory. And there are certain areas where it's like, I'm not even just going to play with that at all. But as we grow in Christ, we actually move away from that to, does it bless? And when you're looking for people to sort of step up in the ministry, and you know that because you, you are entrusting the most important thing to God, which are people, the highest currency to God, the highest denomination, human beings. Nothing's more, but Jesus didn't die for anything but human beings. And, and I'm going to entrust them to someone else. Do you entrust them to someone that's still going, is it okay? Is it, you know, can we still play that or will this bless? Because the moment I'm motivated by, well, will this bless people? I know that they're going to be in good hands. And look at, I'm not here to, you know, I'm not here to go, well, that person's a horrible Christian. But when we're young, we, we, we are still figuring out, can I do this? Is this still beneficial? Now, look at, as we get older, there's some things you just, you just can't do like you used to do anyways. You know, it's like, I mean, the idea, I'm not going to be, uh, chances are I may never slam dunk again in basketball unless we lower the rim. But, uh, and even then, I don't know if it's good for any of us. And if I have to reach that high and my shirt goes up, 
all of you will need counseling. But the, the reason I say that is, is that a lot of these questions are asked, they really do seem like they're genuine questions. And the, Paul at least gives them the benefit of the doubt, like meat sacrificed to idols. They're not kind of, you know, they're like, you know, well, I mean, am I really going to hurt someone by doing this? Is this, is this bad? It isn't how much of this is bad, if that makes sense. It's, is it bad at all? I just want to, I, I'm just checking with you, Paul, because I'm really not sure here. So those are kind of the questions that are being addressed here. <clears throat> so let's go, what we'll do is, I'll say this. The first one is in the area of marriage. Then we'll read through the verses. Okay. Uh, 7.1 says, now concerning things in which you wrote me, it's good for a man not to touch a woman. Amen. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife, and let each woman have her own husband. Kind of sounds like one apiece, right? Like one man to one wife. That kind of thing. Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, <coughs> does. and likewise the husband doesn't have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But I say this as, yeah, but I say this as, as a concession, not as a commandment. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. A little side note here. I mean, obviously, we're kind of getting the general overview. He's like, look at if you're single. And what they'll say is if you're single, don't look for a spouse. Look how to handle that. But keep yourself single-focused on the moment. But what it's interesting is, is they should be like I am. But Paul was married. At least at some point before this, he was married. And maybe it says, aren't we allowed to be able to take believing wives like Peter does? And, but somewhere down the line, it sounds like she left. And Paul just chose to be single from that point on, is what it sounds like. I mean, at least that's what we can gather from the little bit of information we have on it. Anyways. So, uh, now to the married, I command. Now, not I, but the Lord. Now look at there, that was my opinion. Now this is the Lord now. A wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried and be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loose. Are you loose from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries and she, um, she has not sinned, nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I will spare you. So I want you to be... I want you to be without care. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord. Yeah. He may please the Lord. But he who is married cares for the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Here's the simplest on the on this. He goes, listen. <coughs> and like we're separating there. But on this side, you guys don't have something we can't have. My heart will always have to be divided. Because on one side of it, I can have my heart completely driven towards the Lord and wanting to please Him. But on the other side, I'm also, my heart is also divided because I want to please my wife too. Now, the good news is they should correlate. It isn't like they should be on opposite sides or I married poorly. And I didn't, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> but he goes, you know, 
in a case like that, my heart ha- is divided in my love, if that makes sense, but your heart doesn't have to be. And what's amazing is how the enemy really works really hard to try to divide your heart before it's divided, if that makes sense. It's like you're in love with someone, you just haven't met them yet. And you see a lot of people, they get to this place where it's like you get caught in this being in love with being in love. And it's like it's like you, your heart's already like there's, there's a part the Lord has, but then there's this other part and there's nobody even there. And so you meet somebody and you're kind of trying to slip them into that slot. But then what happens is you get married and you realize at that moment, you're like, wow, all that time before that, I could have really had. Well, let me say it this way. I'm convinced there's a reason, well, several reasons, why a couple should be married before they start having children. Now, I'm not telling you you're pregnant, you shouldn't marry. But uh, one of them is, is there's so many things to work out in the core relationship and governance and all of those things before children come in and really turn the screws on that. Because let's, I mean, it's like you want the house built well before the tornadoes start showing up. And, and you know, and again, they're the most beautiful and wonderful tornadoes there are. But nonetheless, there still could be tornadoes. And, and the reason I say that is you want that core relationship, the one that's going to last for the rest of your life. The kids are going to come, they're going to grow up, and they're going to move out in theory and uh, in one way or another. But this relationship stays. And... It's like, you know, what happens is you watch so many couples, the kids finally leave and they stare at each other like strangers and go, you know, we've done nothing to invest in ourselves as a couple because we've been so busy diverting all of the attention to this. And so you work this core thing out first, because if you don't, when the other thing comes in, it's really going to drive a wedge between it because you haven't already been, you haven't created the unified front first. Does that make sense? In the same way, we correlate, we make sure that the core relationship, which is us and the Lord is solid before you add somebody else in one, or they'll become a wedge between you and the Lord because that has to be worked out first. And what Paul says is, look, it's not a sin to get married, but if your heart's already divided when it shouldn't be, that's a problem. He goes, but on the other side of it, it's amazing because the married people want to be single and the single people want to be married, is what he says here. But then again, in a carnal church, wouldn't you expect that? So, And the fact that he says, look, if you're married, don't get divorced, tells me that this carnal church, church, this carnal church is full of divorce. And I would expect that in a carnal church. Does that make sense? All right. Next chapter. Idols, meat, now concerning things offered to idols. We know that we all have knowledge, and knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge. For some, the consciousness of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened um, to eat those things up your life? Because of your knowledge, shall be weak by the So you can either be driven by freedom or driven by love. Now, he doesn't say you can't eat meat. Praise the Lord for that. But he does say, if in any way what you do has the potential <coughs> to stumble someone. Love them enough to make the choice otherwise. And Paul would say, hey, I'd rather not eat any meat if that's what it does to stumble people. And it sounds to me like Paul didn't, Paul was not a vegan. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, and notice, by the way, at least in these verses, the way he points it out is, certainly if you're going to be in their temple, you're going to, you're going to trip someone up. There's no doubt about that. You can't do that without doing anything. Yeah. <coughs> there's no doubt. And so, Paul's like, there's, you know, you're, there's this, the church really, because we live in a world of entitlement where don't you dare bag on my freedoms, don't you dare infringe on what, I have, I have a right to be free in anything I choose, and then the church steps in and says, there are absolute laws here. I was talking to a guy who is a Brazilian lawyer today, uh, but he can't practice law here. And he says, it's radical, the difference. He goes, in Brazil, we have laws. We have laws that you stand by. He goes, but here, he goes, this is his understanding. Everything is built on precedent. And it's like, there's this judgment and that judgment. And again, this is a small view of it. He goes, but the difference is, there was an absolute law that you could compare it to, and he goes here, for the most part, from his understanding, is everything's got this sliding scale of how it plays out in precedent, and there's the difference between relativism and absolutes. Though he wasn't using those words, I was driving him to it so I could talk about the Lord, of course. And the whole point of that is, is that <clears throat> we live in a place where it's like it's all relative, so we all have all these freedoms, and then the church sounds so confining. But you've got to know there's freedom in absolutes. Because it's the first time in your life you actually know something and be confident in it and just know it's not going to change. It's not a matter of debate or someone's opinion. It's just what it is. And there's something really freeing about that. So we get again to that point where it's like, is this, do I have the freedom to do it? Yeah, but is it, does it have the potential to be harmful? Okay. Giving. Chapter 9. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar? Even so, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live in the gospel. Oh, I love that. God, you know, the whole point is, and it's like what he was saying ultimately is, is that people have a right to be sponsored in their ministry. Oh, I, would, I can't wait for the day when the church is at a place where we could sponsor it's like, and the whole point is, is you want to free them up. It isn't just because what you want to do is put anyone on payroll. You want to be able to say that if that person had more time, they would be doing something ministry with it, if that makes sense. And giving them more time provides more ministry to be done. Hey, there are other people, and we've known this because some of the people who have come here, when you give them the free time, they're either going to fill it up with ministry or they're not. And it isn't like, to be honest, a you just watch, it just naturally, supernaturally naturally happens, if that makes sense. The next thing you know, it's like walks turn into, they're talking to people and sharing Jesus with them. Or, I mean, it all depends on what their particular gifts are. And you, you realize that as a facilitator, as a pastor, like the whole goal is it's like, you know, man, if I could just give this guy a, a, a day free, what would he do with it? Or if I can give this girl a day free, what would she do with it? If that girl would take that day and she would she would just start sharing Jesus with everything, we'd be doing the world we'd be doing the world a favor by giving her that day, if that makes sense. And so anyway, so that's the idea. And he goes, look at someone who who lives by the gospel, let him be sponsored to do it. Because if he can't if he's not allowed to do it somewhere else, then he should be doing it where he can. <coughs> There's some people, by the way, their greatest ministry will be to get them to work. If that makes sense. There's some people they're the way they function best is in a work setting where they're sharing Jesus with people. There are other people, and, it, and you, we're all aware, especially in our culture, approaching a stranger is a gift. Not everyone can do it. Most of us can't approach. Well, a single stranger, maybe. 
approaching five strangers in a day will exhaust most people. I mean, especially because you know that even though what you want to give them is the gift of Jesus, you still feel like you're selling something. Even though you know you want to give them the greatest thing there's, and you're compelled for a love for them, you're like, God, let this not be as awkward as it is in my head as I'm rehearsing this. You know? Because it's like, oh, how you doing? Nice. Nice weather. Okay, so you going to hell or not? You know? It's like, well, that was a little bit of a weird state, you know? But it's like, at least let's rip the Band-Aid off and the plaster and let's just move forward. But it's like, you know, but then there, the whole part of it is find that place where you can do that. You know, put and put yourself in that place. It's, you know, I, I, Suzanne knows this. I love being in places where I can just, where the Lord just gives you favor and you start talking. That stalls in Camden, but that turns out to be the market in Greenwich or the, the street market in, uh, in Greenwich. It's like these places where I'm able to just be long enough to start talking to someone and you know it's going to go to Jesus. And I love that. And it's like, thank you, Lord, that I have that time to do it. You know, and it's like we just got a text from the guy that runs the market uh, that invited us by a few days ago. You know, it's like and it all started. It, it, pardon me for saying, but it all started because I, I was walking by on one of those days when it was closed. And I saw this guy struggling to move a wooden like a, kind of like it would look like a shed outside. But it's a hut, you know, where you like <clears throat> sell burgers and cakes and that kind of thing. And the poor guy was trying to do it himself, and he was doing it the Roman way. There were logs on the ground, and he was trying to roll it on, you know. And this poor guy, you know, I was like, I'm like, this guy's going to get run over by his hut. So I'm like, hey, I know you don't know me. I just moved in the neighborhood, but can I help you? And he's like, oh, I don't know. I'm like, no, no, I tell you what. I can tell already you probably won't say yes, but I'm going to offer it and just help you. Just say no when I won't. And he didn't. So I'm like, all right, I got him, got him. I'm trying to get over the British thing, right? So... I'm like in there, and so we kind of get in in its place, and he's like, thanks a lot. I'm like, oh, are you kidding? He gave me some exercise, and you know what? And he's like, well, my name's Kevin. I'm like, hey, nice to meet you. And he's like, yeah, I run this place. And I'm like, well, cool, okay. You know, you know, in those environments, you don't really know whether that's really, you know, it's like, oh, and I'm uh, the prime minister, you know. <laughs> you know? And I'm like, well, cool. I'm actually a guy, and ultimately, we're going to be playing a church in this area, and I just want you to know that. Hey, and he goes, why don't you just take my number? And this is what I'm telling him. Just take my number. If you need anything like this, I just love to help you out. So the guy's like, okay. So he took me, and I thought he was just being polite, and he did. And that was kind of the last we kind of saw of him until a couple nights ago when we went and saw a movie. And on our way out of the movie, we walked by it, and on, it was a Friday night. And I guess one Friday night of the month, they have this kind of late night thing, and there he was. He was kind of pickled. And he was just kind of sitting there, and he, he's like, hey! And, that, and then he just started opening his heart. I mean, it was, you know, and sometimes that can happen when you're, enhanced uh but uh he you know he had lost a son a few years ago and it was like his his confidant i mean it was like the guy that he'd always been with i, I haven't even told you this but I've been, I've been praying about even to be honest helping him during christmas season because he hasn't had his i mean it was like that was the thing they did is they sold christmas trees was the two of them i mean and he's like his son was a shoer a horseshoer they're called ferrymen and uh he like he had the tattoo of his son on his arm and then he's like, and let me show you the other tattoo. And off his shirt goes. And we were there with Ruthie, if you can imagine. And he's taking his shirt. His whole back is a mural of his son shoeing a horse. And you could tell he just loved his son. But, I mean, he was really unpacking his heart. And we're like, oh, my goodness. This is a whole lot of information. And his birthday 
by the way, was on Monday. And I was just like, wow. You know, and so we're, we're listening to this and we're just praying for that moment. And you know those moments where you want to bring in the Lord and he just starts saying more? And you're like, all right, Lord, I'm going to trust you. So Monday comes after church and uh, I'm gonna, I give him a, I go to give him a birthday card. And to thank him and tell him, as a Christian man, I want you to know I'm praying for you and for your healing and for your family. And I had no idea how he would respond to that. And uh, and he wasn't there. So I wound up giving it to his daughter who works the booth. And he just texted me and thanked me for the car. And I'm just like, oh, it's just, the whole point of it's this. When you get time, what are you going to do with it? And if you can find the place, let's face it, there are certain places you'll rise up and certain places you won't. Find the place. Keep pushing yourself into places until there's that place where you thrive in the Lord and ministry starts happening. And then stay there. <laughs> and then be there. And be there. And that's kind of the fun part. And okay. Off to Scotland. See you. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone heard, right? Authority given. Thank you. I'm not going to answer that. All right. Yeah. Okay, next. Idols. <laughs> Chapter 10, verse 20. Suzanne, why don't you read it since we won't, otherwise we'll dominate all those verses. Rather that the things which the Gentiles <coughs> sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And they do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of the demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. So in the end of it all, when they're sacrificing to idols, what are they really sacrificing to? Demons. demons. That's what he tells you. So I, had, I don't want you hanging out there. Okay. Men and women at the table. This is fun. I'm going to go ahead and take it just so we can keep going around. Oh, oh, sorry. Hello. You were here. I was here too. Bruno, go ahead. Right. Thanks, man. praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. Well, that is one and the same as if her head was shaved. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever um, eat this bread or drink this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. There are people that say this book is irrelevant because it's speaking to a culture so opposite in the area of def definitions of men and women. And what's clear is Corinth is the same as here. The idea of women shaving their heads, by the way, is men used to do this thing where they hunted pig, hunted wild pig. So they'd run bare-chested, they'd throw off their shirts, they'd shave their heads because they didn't want to get caught when they were running through trees and so forth. And they'd start hunting, and it was kind of a man, blah, 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 testosterone thing. And women were like, we could do the same thing as men. And so there was a whole group of women shaving their heads, running around with no shirts on, hunting pigs with the men, showing they can do the same thing. Now, <clears throat> Paul's not even addressing that issue. What he's addressing is the church versus the unsaved world. He says there are definitive roles in the church because there are definitive roles in the family. And the church is supposed to be, in essence, a collection of families. Now, what he doesn't say is that, no, that women are less or have less rights or anything like that. Because we need to start by recognizing that clearly 
there is an equilibrium between responsibility and authority. There is no authority given without responsibility and no responsibility given without authority. And when someone says, how dare they have that spot and not me? Well, every spot that comes, comes with authority and comes with its responsibility attached to it. You don't get one without the other. And so <clears throat> in the church, obviously in a carnal church, everybody's competing for the limelight. And that's the idea. The idea of your head covered or uncovered was the idea of being under authority or being who's responsible and who's responsible to follow. A woman with her head uncovered says, I'm the boss. And a man with his head covered says, I'm not. And what you find in a lot of cases is there's this challenge between who's the boss. And again, the boss is the person who has the authority to lead, but also the responsibility for that as well. So the church was in this place where the genders had become completely liquid and lucid here, or lucid, was the idea. So the idea of a person with their head covered or uncovered was the idea, you know, and by the way, that was the case in regards to elders as well. They seemed to walk hand in hand, but there was no respect for their eldership. Well, of course, we see that today as well here. I, do you, it seems like you can't have one without the other. And, uh, and of course, you know, how dare the men should get, and it doesn't say men should get paid more than women. Or anything like that. But what it does say is there are specific roles that a father should have in the household and the church should look like that. That was the idea. And if the church doesn't represent that, then how is the, the new family going to figure out how that's supposed to be? So, anyways. And again, how do I develop all of this in three minutes? Spiritual gifts. Who's, whose turn is it? Oh, it's mine. Yay. Okay. There are diversity of gifts, but the same God. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. The manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the purpose of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, and to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. <coughs> but one of the same spirit work all these things, distributing to each one individually <coughs> as he wills. Awesome. Now, in the Romans text where it lists spiritual gifts, it says in regards to faith. Operate them in proportion to your faith. Here the issue is, because it's a carnal church, that there is a union in spirit. They're all to be done for the benefit of everyone, not for you. It's, they're not for the exaltation of you, but for the benefit of others. Does that make sense? But in a carnal church, your spiritual gifts are, the, are in essence your aftermarket products that soup up your vehicle to make you look awesome. And he goes, that's not what we're looking for here. It's actually about blessing others not lifting yourself up. So notice it's by the same spirit, by the same spirit, by the same spirit. It's like, so hey, if the same spirit gave you one gift and gave another person another gift, well then in the same spirit, shouldn't there be a unity in that? Spiritual gifts shouldn't divide people. They should unify because we all are basically, wouldn't it be great if we could bless each other? Well, how? Well, what has the Lord given us as gifts to be able to bless each other? Now notice he says though, there, there is a diversity of gifts. There's a diversity of the, the offices are the way that will exercise those gifts and a diversity of results of those gifts. So what that means is, even if we all had a similar gift in this, in the, like let's say we all had the gift of teaching in here, that doesn't mean we'll manifest it the same way. 
Some will do so in counseling or in individual discipleship. Some will do it in large groups and some will do it in smaller groups. Some will, I mean, it's amazing how many different ways a person can exercise the same gift. And what happens is if we start looking at someone else and saying, I want to have the gift like them, well, then, well, unfortunately, you'd stop having the gift like you. And he goes, but even if we all have the same gift, we'll manifest it different and the results may be different. For some, that teaching may bring someone to, to saving faith. For another, that may take a brand new person in Christ and help them get grounded and founded. Another person, it may take somebody who is actually maturing and get them to prepare for ministry. It's amazing how many different ways. For some, it could be to restore someone who's fallen or to take someone who's in a weaker state and help them bring them up. But all of those, it's kind of like this. It's like health. I mean, there's some people who work with babies to help them to where they could get to walk and make sure that they can handle. There are other people who deal with really sick and the terminally sick. There's other people who deal with specific illnesses. It's like, but they're all health, but they exercise, but they do it even with different results. But the ultimate thing is to bless the body, to help the body. So here's the idea. So, and again, I'm trying to do all this in three minutes. Look, okay. Oh, well, I want to be fair for time. But I want to say this. Look at the rest on your own because these are the verses I may pull out. Ultimately, hint, nudge, wink when we get to quizzing again. But <clears throat> love, obviously, it's a very famous chapter. We use it in a lot of ways. But it's like, again, it is always, it's nestled in between spiritual gifts and how to exercise them in church. Chapter 14 is the exercising them in church. But notice there's some really important things that, man, it's like it can't be more clear, but they really get like, you really shouldn't have more than one person speaking in a tongue at a time at a church. And it should only be with interpretation or you should be quiet. And there should be no more than three. Now, I didn't make this up. Look at it for yourself. It's in here. But it's scripture. <clears throat> he goes, and he says, why? Because if somebody walks in and they're a non believer and they should come to know Christ in there, but they hear everyone speaking in a tongue and there's no interpretation and the whole thing's a free-for-all, they're going to think you're crazy and run out of there. Like, let's face it, even new Christians do that. Even mature Christians can do that. And he goes, the purpose is not to compete over who's most spiritual. The purpose is how to bless the body. He goes, the same thing should be with prophets, too. It's not about competing over who could be the greatest prophet. The issue is, is that we want to be used by God to bless each other. And when that happens, God's not going to compete with himself over that. I mean, wouldn't it be great if we were tripping all over each other to try to serve each other? That, but again, I remind you, chapter 14 comes after chapter 13. And if we got love and we realize that that's not just the standard, that's how we're supposed to live, well, then chapter 14 makes a lot of sense. So we go from here are your spiritual gifts, here's your motivation, love. Now here's how it exercises knowing spiritual gifts plus love equal chapter 14. Does that make sense? So when you read those three chapters through, it's a beautiful meal. I mean, three-course meal, if you will. Then, then Paul says in the simple sense in chapter 15, what's wrong with you? Do you really think that there's no resurrection? How do you think there's no resurrection? Jesus rose from the dead. What's wrong with you? He goes, look, if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, we're the most pitiful people on the planet. What in the world are we planning for? If all we do is just cash in our bodies at the end of this. He goes, really? But he also gives us the simplest layout of, of the gospel in all of scripture when he says, I take what I give to you what I first received, which is this. Jesus Christ died for our sins according to scripture. He was buried. And then on the third day, according to scripture, he rose again. And then he was seen by and then he lists a whole bunch of people. And he goes, this is it. He died for your sins according to scripture, was buried, rose from the grave according to scripture on the third day, and then was seen by lots of people. 
There's the gospel. And it's like, I love to be able to list that out because it's like, if you know that much, you know the gospel. So he goes, and if that's the case, resurrection's fundamental. How in the world could you say there's no resurrection? That's chapter 15. Then 16, I'm coming soon. Right now I'm in Ephesus. I'm going to stay there for a while. Um, but then I'm going to, hoping, by the way, uh, to get to you guys soon. So here's the deal. Can you guys have things ready for me because I'm collecting so that I can go and take that gift down to Jerusalem where people are really struggling right now and they need your help. And oh, by the way, bye. So there's our, there's our letter. Read through them on your own. Um, and this one, by the way, let me just say this. Uh, now I know I'm chasing time. I'm sorry. Uh, obviously, in between this and that, there were obviously the guy has repented and he's come back, but there was a tremendous backlash from those who thought, who do you think you are, Paul, to tell us that we have to do this? Mm-hmm. And you know that's always going to be the case. When someone says, you know what, you really have to do what's necessary, and sometimes that's not pleasant. And so... Here's, the, here's my challenge to you, please. Uh, when it comes to restoration, the whole point of it is reconciling. So see what he writes about sorrow, what he writes about repentance, and what he writes about comfort. And mark those things because they're going to become really helpful in ministry. And then what Paul will tell us, what do we know about Paul per- personally from this letter? And what about Paul in regards to his own sufferings? Because what you're going to find is Paul is so hurt and you're going to read it through the letter. The more, the deeper you get into the letter, the more it will be. And then ultimately, in the end of it all, remember that gift? Well, let's go and get it. Okay, are there any questions before we pray? No, I just did sort of a scripture drive-by.